Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paul Rushke, a co-founder and director at Casper Data House. Paul, how are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you for having me, Michael. It is my pleasure. Where are you based exactly? I'm currently based in Melbourne, Australia. That's awesome. That's awesome. And how have you guys been holding up during COVID-19, just incidentally? So I think compared to Europe or the US, Australia, you know, fared pretty well. However, we are right now in the midst of a second wave and we are back again in lockdown. So I'm speaking to you basically from my bedroom slash office. <laughs> nice. That's okay. I'm sitting in my living room. So same thing. <laughs> Can you give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context? Like how did you get to here? So I'm originally from Austria. I did my PhD in economics at the University of Innsbruck. And what what always intrigued me about economics is this combination of having a very structured theoretical framework that can be used to analyze phenomena in society and in, in the economy using data. And I always liked working with data, especially alternative data sets. So not just the standard official macroeconomic data. Early on, I worked with satellite data, with GIS data. And I I kind of like that. I mean, spending long hours coding around with data. After that, I went to the US, did a research fellowship at the Wharton School. And I think there I decided, yes, I want to stay in academia. That's what I want to do. It's, you know, my area to be creative. Fast way forward, I mean, I ended up in Australia at Monash University. Cool. I basically am now an associate professor. And that's where I met Simon Angus and later Klaus Ackermann, who is a fellow Austrian who did basically his PhD together with Simon and myself. And around that, basically, this PhD thesis, the idea for Casper evolved. Oh, wow. So basically, this was a research project that kind of got on steroids. And then we're now going to turn this into a company or already has turned into a company, which is really cool. I want to back up for a second, though, and understand better this concept of alternative data, right? So I believe you said you were studying in Innsbruck when you were doing this. And there's a ton of data that every government and municipality releases about the economy, right? Whether it's GDP growth, or whether it's employment or unemployment, all this kind of data. And everybody analyzes that. But what was the idea for you to say, wait a second, there's satellite data that I can analyze and then put it in the context of the economy? How, how did that work? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So the first thing that intrigued me, I think, was more of a, you know, different tools type of thing. So I was, during my PhD, I was sitting next to, to geographers. And when I looked at their screen, they always had this, you know, very nice looking maps. And I got interested in in these things, in this more spatially granular data. And I thought, you know, in economics, we are mainly dealing with aggregate data at the country level, but within the country, there are so many differences in economic development, for example. So it would be nice to combine the technology of the geographers with, you know, economic thinking. That's the first thing. And then when we think about publicly or official accounts and official data, this data is available and in a relatively reliable quality for a lot of the the industrialized, the richer countries. 
But once it comes to the emerging economies and the poor economies, which are, you know, where actually most of the world's population lives in, the data is actually very, very, there's often not much data around or it's collected at a very poor quality. And that got me thinking, oh, you know, there's something there we can investigate because one goal of economists is to, you know, think about how can we improve the livelihoods of the world's poorest. Right. And how can we do that if we can't even measure in a good way the current, you know, standard of living and the current level of economic activity? And so you need to look at other sources beyond, you know, standard uh, sources of statistical from statistical offices. So this is actually really interesting. And I want to make sure I understand this right. You can take satellite data. I love this idea of what do you call it? Spatially, what's that granular data? Yeah, sp- spatially granular data. So you take this idea of spatially granular data, and you combine that. Like, so you have satellite views. I, I want to use the actually. Let's use Africa, right? Which is kind of the last source of growth in the world, and you can literally take pictures of this spatially granular data and then couple it with economic data at a granular level, and then figure out not just how economic growth is happening, but precisely where it's happening. Yes. So what I started with nighttime luminosity data, because that's more accessible. Um, so the, the basic idea is, you know, you know, these pictures of the earth by night that some people have as posters in their homes. And uh, this data is actually, you know, publicly available. It's a, a byproduct of, of satellites, mainly collected by the US. And when you think about it, the the, the main components of GDP is like consumption, investment, and government expenditure. And these things emit light at night mm-hmm. to various degrees. And when you, you know, just look at the world and you see the bright, very bright cities, that's also where a lot of the economy, economic activity in the country goes on. These, they shine very bright. And then when you go to the more, you know, fringes, the light becomes, you know, less and less. And then you go to areas where no one lives and obviously it's pitch black. There's a striking image that compares North and South Korea and their border is basically a straight line. And you can see basically right at the border from South to North Korea, the light stops. And we know that, you know, that the level of economic development between those countries, I mean, the the differences are huge. And that's nicely reflected there. Now, one could say, you know, these are just pictures, it's light, and that's correct. But the the first step was to say, is this measure, this proxy for economic development actually correlated with official GDP numbers? And we showed that it is. There's a, a correlation to that. And then what we, we were able to do, for example, is we looked at what explains differences in economic activity in Africa between different regions. You know, why is, is wealth unequally distributed in space, not just between people? We know in, you know, the developing countries, there are very few very rich people and then a lot of the vast majority is very poor. And we then said, okay, one issue could be that there's favoritism going on, that, you know, the political leaders that don't have, you know, checks and balances and the political leaders might use some of the public money and funnel it into their region, support their ethnic groups, support their families. 
And actually, that's what we showed. So we combined the birthplaces of basically all political leaders around the world. We, com we compared the light before they got into power in their birth region with the light after they were in power. And we showed that it had a huge effect, especially in poorly in countries with, with less democratic institutions where you put checks and balances on, on the political leaders. And that's you know, one thing you can do with that data. It's interesting because my guess is that would be true in developed countries as well, but much harder to track because those politicians are probably coming from places where there's already enough economic activity and that the, on the margin, it's probably not a big change. But in developing countries, it has to be massive. I saw the same thing in Japan. You saw Shinkansen lines getting built, you know, to places where, you know, into the countryside for no other reason than that's where that politician came from and he had power. But I love this idea of using this spatially granular data to write this and then figure out the correlation between those things because it's not imminently clear before you start thinking about it. Is that what your PhD was written on? Uh, no, my PhD was more on uh, natural disasters, so a completely different topic, actually. Okay, and one of the things you said earlier was that the data was safe. What, what do you mean by safe, and how do you know, how do you know that? Like, how do you judge that? Uh, safe or more, I mean, reliable in the sense that um, if we go back to the regional favoritism project, so uh, the goal of that project was to identify potentially wrongdoings by politicians you know if i mean it 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 could be outright corruption you know in some countries we know there are kleptocrats that took public money and just spend it on building a palace okay but the other one is more subtle and you know your shinkansen example is very good because one could say well you know i conducted a cost benefit analysis and it clearly showed that building the shinkansen to my doorstep makes economic sense. So the the goal was to say, well, if people, if, if politicians do conduct some kind of favoritism, maybe they don't want it to show up in the official statistics. So thereby using kind of alternative data that can't be manipulated, you cannot manipulate satellite data. If you want to investigate, you know, some form of corruption, Therefore, this data is very good and, and, you know, very nice. So I also want to understand, so you talked a little bit about this relationship between the data that you are capturing and human behavior. I want to talk about it in the context of the internet, if you don't mind, because I think this is something that a lot of people in the mainstream are not talking about so much, but I feel like you've done a ton of work on this. If you go out and analyze, like, what do you call them, like active rollouts, some degradation numbers around the internet, and the human behavior around that, both economic and social, what kind of stuff are you figuring out around that as well? Yeah, so that was part of the, the research we, out of which basically Casper emerged. So we found again, Klaus Simon and I, this very large data set of what we call internet activity. So it has basically over a trillion observations of whether an IP address is online or offline, and the latency. So the, the ping response time it took from the point it was measured from a server to this IP address. And we thought, wow, that's interesting. But, you know, the this data there was maybe sort of interesting from a computer science perspective because it allowed you to get an idea of the, the overall network. 
But from a, an economist or social science perspective, the issue is we didn't know where these IP addresses were. You know, these were just IP addresses in the IPv4 space. So Klaus basically spent the first two years of his PhD merging these one trillion observations with another data set containing a billion observations that geolocates these IP addresses. And that was a relatively big task. So the computer he used for that is actually called Massive. So it's one of the biggest computers in Australia. They use it for the Australian synchrotron. And so we, after the two years, we got the data and we said, the overall idea is that, you know, the internet makes everyone connected. And I mean, right now, you know, we are on the internet a lot of time. I mean, during our wake hours. And we thought that, you know, maybe human behavior, we can measure that with this internet data. Because, you know, if you are not at home, you switch off your devices. If you are not at work, your device is not at use. And maybe the data reflects that. And so we thought, okay, with what could we start? What's the most granular human activity within a day that we could measure? And we said, well, maybe we can measure sleep and wake cycles, okay? Uh, because that defines everything else. Our entire, you know, productive and consumption activity is defined by when we get up and when we go to bed. And again, what we did is, you know, we have, we apply the same principle. We have an alternative data source, internet activity, and we first confirmed whether it measures, whether it correlates actual human behavior. And there's time use service from the US that people fill in every day and they note, okay, I went to bed at that time, I woke up at that time. And we, we combined these two data sources and we were able to show that our internet data predicts sleep and wake cycles up to 15 minutes accuracy. And then we said, wow, there's something in there. Yeah, and we, we thought, okay, let's go further. Do we measure, can we now go further and say, do we actually measure economic activity with that? And we said, we showed that it nicely correlates with changes in cross-value added across industries using European data. And that basically set off uh, in motion, a, a whole research agenda on this thing. And at that time, that research, there we used data that other people collected. And we said, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we could collect this data ourselves? Because the data set we used in this research went from 2006 to 2012. Okay. And at that time, it was 2017. And we said, the internet has changed, and I mean, this is such a rich data source. What about if we could collect the data ourselves? And so we started off setting up or programming our own um, measuring platform. Luckily, Klaus had a computer science background, and also Simon uh, is a bit of a tech wits, and that allowed us to basically construct our own monitoring device that ultimately allowed us to measure internet activity in close to real time at any place in the world. Okay, I want to I want to jump in for a second because this is really fascinating. So, you were used data for you said from 2006 to 2012 and in 2017 you can look at that data and come up with some theses and then come up with some conclusions around what that data meant and what it told you. And then you kind of made this decision to say 
if we can collect this data ourselves in real time, which I think is fascinating because it reminds me of, you know, my time sitting on a trading desk. We can talk about that as well because real-time data is super impactful. But I'm curious about what you did on the data infrastructure side. In other words, if you're getting a trillion pieces of data or a billion pieces of data, what kind of infrastructure are you building and, you know, to save it, to be able to quickly analyze it and to be able to analyze it in real time as well, just from a tech perspective? Yeah, so that's a very good point. I think, you know, up until a few years ago, we wouldn't been able to pull Casper off with, you know, with our small means that we currently have in terms of, you know, uh, investment. But right now with the emergence of cloud computing, so we are using Amazon Web Services, where AWS to collect, help us collect the data, store the data, analyze the data. And that can be done with relatively, so it's very user-friendly and it can be done with, it's very cheap. That allows us basically to run the operation as it is currently. Yeah. Yeah, because in the old days you would have had to build like your own server farm, which was ridiculously expensive. And now you just kind of scale up with Amazon. I mean, I'm not advertising for them, but to be fair, it just works really well. Exactly, exactly. No, it's a great service. Yeah. So you talked about sleep and wake cycles, right? And some of the information that that gave you, where does mobile come in on this, right? Because you know from a, uh, what's a device's MAC address, right? What kind of device it is, right? You don't need the serial number. You can tell from, from some other data on any, in, in any individual device, like what kind of device it is. Where does mobile come into play on yeah. this, right? In other words, do you see movement from mobile devices to fixed devices and then into these sleep and wake cycles or does that not matter? So in, our case, we the thing we can only measure is not the location of the individual mobile device, but the closest right. cell tower. Got it. Yes. That makes sense. So okay. we can our data, of course, sees uh, can nicely measure the expansion of you know mobile internet, but we cannot go down to the individual mobile device. There are pros and cons to that. Of course, I mean, more data would be better. And I think there are already some other companies out there providing for individual countries mobile phone location information. Our data uh, cannot do that. We measure the best we can do is go to the to the cell tower level. Okay, but it's still a fascinating amount of data. I want to understand, like going forward, what's the idea here? You gather all this data, you've, you've tested some of your own hypotheses, you've proved most of them. What can, you, what can you do now? Like, are there real world applications to this, let's say for like COVID penetration or for political events? You mentioned natural disasters, which I think you said you wrote your PhD on. How does all what you're doing now fit into all that stuff? And maybe even to like in the insurance space, like how does all that work together? Yeah, so we, you know, once we had set up our own monitoring technology, we said, okay, you know, we had exactly the same question. What can we do now? And initially, that was even before Casper. We said, you know, let's monitor internet activity during critical events. And our first application were the 2018 presidential elections in Russia. Okay. At that time, we, you know, there was anecdotal evidence that the the Putin and the Russian regime interferes with the Russian internet around elections. You have some areas that are very pro-opposition. And given that most of the media is under government control, the internet was the only source of free information access. 
And we knew that in the elections before, the Russian regime throttled the internet speed in some areas, some opposition areas. So they didn't completely shut it down because, I mean, shutting down the internet is not only shutting down the opposition, but also shutting down the economy. So you don't want to do that. They just throttled it that you can still send emails, but you can't send, you know, videos of protests, for example that could mobilize opposition people to go to the elections. Now, what we then said, we before we started monitoring in real time the, the entire Russian IP space and made this, this information publicly available for everyone to look. And we had a map and people could look at whether there's an interruption in their area. We actually didn't find much there around those elections. The main reason was that by that time, most of the opposition politicians were in jail or were not allowed to contest. So, And then the next thing was uh, Hurricane Florence. And at that time, our monitoring platform is sort of a beacon from a, a tower where we said, OK, where do we put the eye next? And so with Hurricane Florence, we knew the hurricane is evolving over the Atlantic and moving towards the U.S. East Coast. And then we basically, in very you know, high frequency, monitored the East Coast, U.S. East Coast. And NOAA, so the U.S. Meteorological Agency, provides real-time updates about where the hurricane moves. So people know, okay, the hurricane is coming in my direction. And when you, you mentioned the insurance sector, the insurance sector gets actually real-time updates on where the hurricane is at. But we don't actually have close to real-time information about the actual impact. So, you know, if a hurricane makes landfall, you know, it can rain, it can storm. But sometimes, and even on TV, it, it, it looks very horrible. But maybe if the wind speed is not as high, the damages are not that big. And our data basically allowed us to, in real-time, show, okay, the hurricane made landfall. And, uh, you know, the internet is out. The, the electricity is basically out and we can measure in real time the impact because what we could see is the further the hurricane went inland, it lost its power and we didn't pick up any more effect on internet activity and internet pressure when the hurricane you know, went further inland. And by the areas closer to the coast where we saw an outage, we could then measure different rates of recovery in the hours and days following the event. Now, what does this give you? It gives you a first close to real-time information about the actual impact, which is correlated with damages and actual claims. So you can then infer that in areas where the initial drop was very high and the recovery takes longer, the actual damage and the claims that then people make to the, to the primary insurers are very likely to be higher. And that's important because the insurance companies need to plan ahead on, you know, how much money they will need to pay out to their customers. But this is really interesting, too, because you could actually sell some kind of parametric insurance using that data, knowing as an insurance company that the further away you get from landfall, the less likely the damage is going to be. But you still may be able to insure some of those customers or potential customers for that even at low levels, with the understanding that you may not ever need to make a payout because you've already understood statistically what the likelihood is of having damage there based on the data you've gathered for any individual hurricane, but also any hurricane you've gathered data on in the aggregate, yeah? Exactly. So similar to any other objectively 
observable indicators such as weather, rainfall, temperature, wind speed, our data allows us to build parametric insurance products based on internet outages or internet slowdowns because we we have the historical performance of the internet at a certain locality. And if it drops below a predefined threshold, you can say the trigger hits in, the insurance is paid out. And the neat thing is because we have global coverage, we can acknowledge that you know some areas the internet is less stable, so we can adjust the trigger accordingly and say, look, we are aware that in some, I mean, speaking of Southeast, Southeast Asia, in some areas, the, the internet is very volatile. You don't want your product to be triggered, you know, every two hours when the internet slows down. You want to, to be triggered when it's really, you know, below a bigger threshold that's way below the long-term average and the long-term performance, because that would means, yes, you're actually suffering from a loss. Right. So look, one of the things I'm thinking here is that if I go back to my experience sitting on an equity trading desk or even on a fixed income trading desk, you have all this real-time data, but you also have all the historical data, which you can then backtest. And you can use that backtesting to predict, maybe not perfectly, but you can use it to do predictive analysis on what it will mean if the data forms the same structure again and you can do that with weather data or with you know not cat data whatever it is and then create products around that options around it whatever for particular payouts and that's actually really interesting and if you're capturing trillions of pieces of data whether it's weather data or internet outage data and then combining them together to find out what those correlations are you can come up with some pretty powerful products around that no yes definitely so i mean one of our, you know, client base is the financial sector and, you know, investment managers, uh, as you mentioned. So the, uh, I think that the strength of our data is that we, we talked about two things now, the natural disasters event and political crisis. But when you think of what's happening in the world today, I mean, every hour some event happens that ultimately affects the stock market. Now, you know, some of these events might go into the news, some might not, some might go into the news, but with a very long delay. But for us, it's, you know, very hard to aggregate all these events. Now, what our argument is that a lot of these events are somewhat reflected in the Internet. So, you know, if, the, if a disaster hits an area, the Internet is out. If there is political uncertainty, there might be, you know, internet outages, a spike either in internet activity, as we saw, you know, in the recent protests in uh, the United States, everyone is online or the government interferes with the internet. If the internet infrastructure itself uh, is affected, what's important, trades are nowadays done over the internet. That's the main trading infrastructure. Even if you have minor slowdowns in the internet infrastructure, the trade that you are, you know, if you are located in San Francisco and you are sending your trade to New York, even small delays on the internet due to changes in latency might probably the, the trade doesn't go through. And yeah, then, you know, it, it impacts your price discovery, but also it also impacts your, um, your price reception because you're right. We used to send trade. If you're talking about stock trading, or, or not, it doesn't really matter. But if you're talking about that, the latency directly impacts you, the prices that you're going to get based on the fact that some people are co-located. So you're right. 
If you're sending a trade from San Francisco to the New York Stock Exchange and your server is sitting in New York, you're much more likely to have that trade get executed at the price you want. Otherwise, the latency is going to kill you. Exactly. And so, and given that there are millions of trades every minute, even small fluctuations in latency can reach, lead to disruptions. And that's what we actually, with our backtesting analysis, have shown is that our measure is a very good measure for market volatility. So we can basically, using our backtesting data, predict market volatility. So we did it for the S&P 500 weeks indicator, for example. And we can improve basic benchmark models on day-to-day -day returns and five-day-ahead models by a significant amount using our data. So this is interesting, too. So is, are your clients also hedge funds, yeah? Yes. Uh, so the, a broad spectrum of, you know, institutional investors, systematic investors, hedge funds, yes. Look, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation, and I hope that this will not be the last time we talk because I've got a ton more questions. And I think as you guys continue to develop this business, I'd like to be able to maybe have Klaus or Simon or even have you back on. We could even do a roundtable with all three of you just to get the interactions. But this has been really interesting, and I really appreciate your time this morning, Paul co-founder and director at Casper Data House. Just awesome stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael.